We can start over if you want. There we go. Mission accomplished. All right, Galatians chapter 6. We're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I decided one day that I was going to be a cowboy. Uh, I had a pair of boots. I had a pair of Wrangler jeans. I had a Garth Brooks cassette tape, and uh, I was good to go. The problem is I lived in a suburb, not on a farm. Uh, I'd never ridden a horse. I had no access to cows. Maybe you've heard the old phrase, all hat, no cattle. I was no hat, no cattle. That's who I was. But that didn't stop me from every Tuesday wearing my jeans and my boots. Uh, if, if I were to ask you, uh, what, if someone labels themselves as a cowboy, what substance should accompany that claim, you would be able to give me a few characteristics, a few things that seem to fit the bill. Uh, I had the label. I did not have the substance, though. Uh, what about the label spiritual in a Christian sense? If someone carries the label spiritual, what substance should accompany that label? Uh, the word spiritual is the word that Paul uses in the opening line of the passage we're going to study this morning. He writes his passage here, directs it specifically to those who are spiritual. And then identifying those Christians, those who are spiritual, which, by the way, to be spiritual doesn't mean to be super Christian, to be Christian plus the upper echelon of Christian. It just means to be Christian. Those who are Christ followers, those who are spirit led. Paul says this is the substance that goes with that label. This is what it means to be a spiritual person. Now, how important do you think it is for a person who is a Christian? To live like a Christian. For the person who has the label to also have the substance that goes with the label. Can you maybe think of an example of someone who called themselves Christian but did not live as if they were a Christian? It's devastating. Every time it happens, it's devastating. And Paul is helping us practice a Christianity that's true from the inside out today. In the first four chapters of our study of Galatians, Paul's argued convincingly that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by adherence to any sort of religious law. But now in the final two chapters, Paul is describing what salvation life is like. Chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians are intensely practical. We've stepped out of the realm of theology, uh, not that it's non-theological, but he's Not shaping our thoughts, he's shaping our actions in these last two chapters. And so Paul is describing what a life of faith looks like in the day-to-day business that we take on. The passage we're studying today takes this fruit of the Spirit that we talked about last week, these inner characteristics, and puts flesh on them. It takes that fruit of the Spirit from the inside out, so that we would understand what it means to be a Christian, to be a spiritual person. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when we use the term spiritual or talk of someone being spiritual. My childhood church experience, the little bit I was in and out of church, was around charismatic churches. And so the term spiritual meant the expression of spiritual gifts, signs and wonders and miracles and things like that. What's interesting is in Paul's description of what it is to be a spiritual person, a Christian person, in this passage, he doesn't describe signs and wonders and miracles or heavenly knowledge or or anything else that is just sort of, "Ah." 
what he describes is just everyday living, caring for people, watching out for your own holiness. This is Christianity 101. My question to you is, what kind of Christian do you want to be? You want to be a spiritual Christian. And Paul's going to show us what that looks like today. My goal today is to compel you to live a spiritual life. And that's not some vague notion. Paul's going to give us five characteristics of the spiritual life. So I want you to follow along with me. Galatians chapter 6, as I read verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, there's the headline, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else, for each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all, good, all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. This passage on first reading, it seems sort of scattered. Paul bounces from topic to topic, so to speak. But the unifying thread through them all is that these are characteristics of the spiritual life. This is the substance of carrying the label child of Jesus Christ. So I want to show you these five characteristics in the passage today. Five characteristics of a spiritual person. The first is this. It's gentle restoration. Spiritual people, those who walk with Christ, those who are led by the Spirit, are people who practice gentle restoration. Paul begins his passage by giving us the headline that I've referred to, those who are spiritual. And when he, when he identifies that audience, I don't think it's just for the sake of verse 1. I, I think it's for the whole passage. In fact, anytime he's speaking to these Galatian Christians... He's thinking of them as spiritual people, meaning their spirit, they walk by the Spirit, they live by the Spirit, they're in step with the Spirit. And so in referencing them, he first tells them that spiritual people are concerned with the spiritual well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when, when we learn that our brother or our sister has been overtaken by sin, what we do is we respond with gentle restoration. We restore them in their walk with Christ in a gentle way. Why does restoration need us or require us to be gentle? I've learned a little something about restoration as of late. Um, Thanks to quarantine, I've become fascinated with a YouTube channel that's run by an art restorer. His name is Julian Baumgartner. I know nothing about art and certainly less about restoration. But this channel has been really fascinating because while the world continues to crumble, every time I watch his video, he puts something back together and it always ends with good news. It's great. So I learned this. 
Uh, art restoration is a timely process, a meticulous process. I've also learned that paintings, when they are finished, they are coated with varnish in order to protect the work underneath. In this particular picture, uh, the restorer found that this painting wasn't covered by varnish. It was covered by polyurethane, which is bad news in the art world. And you all know that because there's no easy way to get this stuff off. Normally, he would use a, a, a gentle solvent or something like that to get the, the, um, uh, to get the varnish off. But this polyurethane is like a hard plastic that's adhered to the surface of the painting. And he can't take a wire brush to it. He can't just pour gasoline or Drano on it or something like that. It'll destroy the painting even worse. His only option was to take a dull scalpel and just scrape. Gently, methodically, intentionally scrape. Hours upon hours upon hours of scraping. Now, the video wasn't that long. He fast-forwarded. But you still get this. You understand how gentle he had to be and how meticulous and direct he had to be with every movement of that scalpel in order to clean the canvas. Well, broken Christians are just like this painting. They're fragile. And if we're not gentle in restoring our brothers and sisters, we will do much more harm. We will increase the damage that they're already suffering if we come in hot we come in with a lot of talking and not as much listening, if we come in blaming and pointing fingers, consider the example of Jesus Christ. Consider how gentle His tone was with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Or consider how gentle He was with Peter when He restored him in John chapter 21. Peter deserved to get punched in the throat a couple of times. Jesus isn't doing that. He gently, over breakfast, restores Peter. And that's what spiritual people do. We follow the example of Jesus in restoring our fallen brothers and sisters. There's two great challenges to being a gentle restorer of another person. The first challenge is this. You need a relationship that's deep enough to know the ebb and flow of your friend's spiritual well-being. Do you know someone like that? Do you have a, a Christian friend that you break spiritual ground with on a regular basis? So that you're praying for each other. You're encouraging each other in your holiness. Do you know someone like that? Do you ever share with a trusted friend how your spiritual life is going? These relationships don't happen easily. They, they can't be manufactured by church programming. They're built by introductions and an investment of time in mutual trust. The second challenge to being a gentle restorer of a fallen brother or sister is the simple act of addressing their spiritual failing. We're more inclined to just sort of look away. It's awkward. And we might come up with any number of excuses not to engage. Well, that's none of my business. What if they get mad at me? What if I ruin the relationship? But, but a relationship built on cowardice is no relationship at all. When we see people that we care about struggling spiritually... We must enter the fray precisely because we love them. That's what spiritual people do. Just like Jesus, they gently restore fallen friends to spiritual maturity. The second characteristic of the spiritual person in Paul's passage is humble burden bearing. We humbly bear the burdens or humbly carry the burdens of our friends. Look at verse 2. 
Paul writes, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is so clever to use a phrase like this, the law of Christ. If you've been with us in the study of Galatians, Paul has railed time and again on the Mosaic law as a means of justification. He has pushed back over and over. The law does not justify. It cannot. It never was meant to do that. But now he uses the phrase, the law of Christ. So does that mean that we now have a new law that will justify us? That if, if I love my neighbor as myself, then I will be justified? No, that's not what Paul means by the use of this phrase. Loving our neighbor is not how we are justified. Rather, it is the result of our justification. Our justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That does not change. But the substance that comes with that faith relationship looks like this. It's carrying the burdens of another. It begs the question then of us, am I a burden lifter or am I a burden creator? I want to give you a challenge this week. I've been struck by Galatians 6-2 since starting to study it. And here's my challenge to you. I want to give you a prayer challenge for every day this week. And I want you to start your day by praying Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Print it off on a sheet of paper. Tape it to your bathroom mirror. Uh, put it on your steering wheel. Put it at the refrigerator, on the coffee pot. Whatever you got to do to get this in front of you this week, I want to challenge you every day this next week, start your day by praying this prayer. It might sound something like this. Father, help me to carry another's burdens today that I might fulfill the law of Christ. Let me be a burden carrier. And I would encourage you, don't just leave this in the general, but get specific with it. Father, help me to carry my spouse's burdens today. Father, help me to carry my kids' burdens today. Father, help me to carry my neighbor's burdens. Father, help me to carry... My employer's burdens today. And I would encourage you, urge you, to add this one to one of your days of praying. Father, help me to understand the unique burdens of my brothers and sisters of color that I might help carry their burdens. Uh, Our elders met on Tuesday night. That's a meeting that you're always welcome to participate in. And uh, this has been, the subject of racial reconciliation has been something we've talked about at our last two meetings. There is deep unity on this subject matter among the elders. There is deep grief. There's also a united commitment to educating ourselves in various ways so that we can lead our congregation well in the area of racial reconciliation. It is a most important work And our first posture to being burden lifters is to say, we don't even know enough to carry burdens. We have to learn. Would you pray that prayer with us this week? God, help me understand so that I can be a burden carrier for my black brothers and sisters. Now, according to verse 3, Paul says we can't carry each other's burdens if we're full of ourselves. Pride kills other-mindedness. I will not pray, how can I lift another's burdens? I will pray that those people will take care of my burdens instead. 
And Paul corrects this attitude in verses 3 and 4. He says, if you think you're so much better than someone else, you're deceiving yourself. You see, when Paul looked in the mirror, he saw a weak man and a strong God. If I look in the mirror and I see a strong man and a weak God, I've deceived myself. I'm very much in the wrong. Now, in verse 5, Paul says that we need to carry our own loads. What does he mean by that? It seems contradictory. He just told us to bear one another's burdens. Now in verse 5, he says uh, each person will have to carry his own load. Well, this is where words matter. The Greek word for burden used in verse 2 is different from the Greek word for load used in verse 5. Different words, different meanings. The burden of verse 2 is something that is extremely heavy and requires help from others. The load of verse 5 is a light pack that I can handle on my own. There are things that I can handle on my own, but there are other things I'm not equipped to handle at all. It will never turn out well when you try to treat your heavy burden as if it is a light load. Brother, you are strong, but you are not carry your own burden strong. Sister, you do all things well. But you cannot carry your own burdens well. We need each other. You're a spiritual person. If you bear each other's burdens and if you let others bear your burdens as well. What do spiritual people do? We restore the fallen. We carry each other's burdens. Third, the third characteristic is gospel-focused generosity. Gospel-focused generosity. Verse 6 is a weird little verse. Paul just drops this line here in the middle of this passage. And as you're reading through, it kind of jolts you a bit. You're like, where did this come from? What does this have to do with anything? Why are we talking about this? Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the teacher. We're mirroring this right now. You are being taught the word. I am the teacher. You should share all good things with me. I'll take your Reese's Pieces. I'll take other assorted sweets, Hornster gift cards. You Just go ahead and bring them up and lay them on the altar right now. Don't do that, please. It's, it's a bit of an awkward verse, a little awkward. But it's saturated in a concern for the gospel. Um, Paul is telling us this here in this little verse and elsewhere that teachers must teach the gospel, right? The one who is taught the word, what's the word? The word is the message about Christ. It's the gospel. So the one who teaches is beautifully chained to the gospel message. The teacher does not have the freedom, the right to speak anything else other than the gospel, no opinion, no conjecture, or any other sub-Christian topic uh, is permitted in this instance. And Paul speaks of a mutually beneficial relationship between the teacher of the gospel and those who are taught. Those who are taught are to share all good things with the teacher, and Paul urges believers to support teachers materially. So in the Galatian context, what that probably meant was sharing food, or money, or whatever things were appropriate for the teacher's welfare. Now, why does Paul put this instruction in here? We don't know for sure, but here's two good guesses. One guess is that when any place Paul established a church, he also established leadership. He never left churches leaderless. So we can imagine that when Paul started these churches in Galatia, he also put in place elders to lead these churches in their growth and understanding of the gospel. Then the Judaizers come to town, these opponents, 
And they would have tried to unseat these leaders. So it's possible Paul's addressing a very real situation, not a hypothetical, but a real situation in the churches in Galatia where they had ceased to support their leaders who had been giving them the gospel. And so Paul is trying to put this back in place. The second goal of Paul's could be just this, that he wants the gospel to be spoken over and over again to these churches. And if they are supporting teachers who can put their time and attention to gospel teaching and discipling the church, then they're doing a good thing. The mission of Christ is advancing. I'm grateful to be a part of a church with a long historical commitment to the gospel. I love that I work with the staff and elders who are eminently committed to the gospel. I'm grateful to belong to a faith family that is wonderfully generous to her teachers and generous towards missionaries that spread the gospel. God has been sowing this as a value in our hearts since the inception of this church. And reading verse 6 gives me reason to praise God for you. What do spiritual people do? Characteristics of them are restoring the fallen, bearing each other's burdens, advancing the gospel. Fourth, personal holiness. Spiritual people are committed to their own personal holiness. Don't be deceived, verse 7 says. God's not mocked for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So in verses 7 and 8, we're back to this familiar ground of spirit versus flesh. We've been here with Paul in this letter uh, a, a couple of times. And this is, uh, this is important farm language for us to understand. Whatever a farmer sows, he will reap. I myself am not a farmer. I have lived among them. And here's what I know. If you plant wheat, you're going to harvest wheat. If you plant soybeans, you're going to harvest soybeans. Whatever you sow is what you will harvest. And Paul says there's a spiritual principle here. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap the flesh. In other words, you cannot be a fleshly, spiritual Christian. Flesh and spirit are mutually exclusive. You're going to be one or the other. You can't be both at the same time. So what does it look like to sow to the flesh? We have all kinds of grotesque things that might come to mind when we think about that. But I would... Caution you that sowing to the flesh is far more accessible than we might realize. One of my favorite writers, a guy named John Stott, commented on this specific verse. And here's what he said about it in thinking about what it means to sow to the flesh. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, Wallow in self-pity. We are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we view pornography. Every time we take a risk that strains our self-control. We are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what we sow. Christian, are you committed to pursuing holiness in your life? Let me recommend a simple two-part strategy. Pursuing holiness requires a focus on the inner life and then a focus on the outer life. First, we grow the character of Christ in us over time by being in the Bible, praying, 
by worshiping, by fellowshipping with other believers, by serving other people. Those things shape our inner man, our inner woman. That's how the fruit of the Spirit are cultivated in us on the inside. But not just, this is not just an inner work. Holiness is outward acts as well. We should act as Christ would towards people and situations. It's heart and hands in the holiness regime. This is what spiritual people do. Spiritual people pay attention to their personal holiness. We restore the fallen. We bear burdens. We advance the gospel. We pursue holiness. Fifth and finally, spiritual people Practice goodness. This characteristic is practical goodness towards everyone we come into contact with. Verses 9 and 10, Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Spiritual people are fueled by practicing good deeds to others. Let us not grow tired of doing good. As we have opportunity, let us do good or work for the good of all. I would encourage you to underline that sentence, work for the good of all. Underline it because the more you think about it, the more prickly it becomes. It is not as simple as it might seem on the page. Working for the good of all. Who belongs to the qualifier all? When the Greek, all means all. It's everybody. We don't create classes of people that we will work for the good of. If it's a human with a heart beating, made in the image of God, we work for their good. It does not matter, their political party, doesn't matter anything, Are they made in the image of God? I am commissioned by Christ to work for their good. Followers of Jesus are marked by a good that is universal in its scope. The person that we're in front of us is the one that we're good to. We have to show goodness to all those who are in need. And I just I want to make sure you understand how radically countercultural this way of living is. To, To be someone who says, I'm going to work for the good of everyone. That is not a value in our culture today. Not by a long shot. Our culture says, work for the good of your tribe. Dehumanize your opponent. Hate your enemy. And the whole time we've forgotten the very words of Jesus who said in Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Somehow, we have ripped the words of Jesus out of our practical goodness because it fits our flesh more to hate our opponents. Christians have to be like Christ, not like political commentators or politicians, or like the world, period. We must be like Christ. How do I respond when the world is crumbling? When the nation is decaying? I respond like Christ. How do I respond whenever things are are happening against the church? I respond here. I pray for my enemies. I work for the good of all. I trust that Jesus knows the way for me. This is what spiritual people do. It is a universal goodness. But it's also a particular goodness. Paul also identifies a specific group that we should be concerned with as well. Verse 10, 
We should be concerned about those who belong to the household of faith. Yes, you have to love your neighbor, but Paul wants us also to look for specific ways to bless our brothers and sisters in the church. That could mean paying a bill for someone in need, cleaning a house, giving a ride, calling to check in, blessing a teacher in the congregation, um, like a school teacher in the congregation. Uh, if, if you are a family of four and you have a table that seats six, you should find two people from the church to fill those seats on a regular basis. Your kitchen table is a ferocious tool for Christian growth and discipleship. You should use it as such. God has given you casserole dishes for the glory of the kingdom. Use those to love people and care for them and build these relationships with each other to work for the good of others. The important part here is that we practice good. We don't have good intentions. This doesn't stay in the theoretical. We are proactive in dispensing good acts and good words to the people around us. The spiritual person seeks to do good to everyone, but especially to their brothers and sisters in Christ. So labels are no guarantee of substance. So what does it look like to be the kind of Christian who walks by the Spirit, lives by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit? Well, Paul's told us, we live lives in which we restore the fallen with gentleness, we humbly bear each other's burdens, we generously advance the gospel, we pursue holiness, and we practice goodness to all people. What about your life? Verse 4 tells us that each person should examine his own life. So let's examine. If you were arrested and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough substance to convict you? Would someone testify that you helped restore them when they were broken by sin? Would someone testify that you helped carry their burdens? Would an audit of your spending show you to be generous towards gospel works? Would surveillance of your private moments show you to be a person who prays and studies the Bible for the sake of holiness? Would your enemies testify that you work for the good of all people? In such a scenario, would it be worse to be convicted for following Christ or for the charges against you to be found lacking merit? You cannot afford to ignore this matter because the price of doing so is just too awful. Paul described in our passage the consequences of not living a spirit-led life. In verse 1, he said you'll be drawn to sin. In verse 3, you'll be deceived about yourself. In verse 7, you will mock God. In verse 8, you will harvest destruction. What kind of life do you want to lead? God knows the kind of life He wants for you to lead. He wants you to lead a life that brings salvation and hope to those around you. The end of Matthew chapter 9 tells us that Jesus was traveling from village to village in Galilee preaching the good news and healing the sick. Matthew 9.36 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. When we look at the brokenness of the world around us, the utter ineptitude of our political leaders, the toxicity of our social commentators, uh, we should, like Jesus, weep for our friends and family members who are like sheep without a shepherd. Those tears should not last long because you are the answer to the prayer in verse 38. 
You are the worker sent into the harvest. You are the one Jesus and the apostles prayed for. Your spirit-led life, exercised in common and ordinary ways, is how you fulfill the law of Christ. You are the worker sent into the field. Jesus told his disciples in John twenty twenty one, As the Father sent me, so send I you. And there's a spirit, that's, that's what a spiritual life of substance looks like. It's a spiritual life that mirrors James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If I were a married couple struggling with conflict, I would sit together with Galatians 6, 1 through 10 open. And I would not get up until I understood how I was contributing deceit and destruction to my marriage. And renew my commitment to be a spiritual spouse. If my life were connected to many non-believers, I would use Galatians 6, 1-10 through as a roadmap for living a spiritual life that engages them with the gospel. If I was sick of sin winning the day in the world around me, I would pray the words of Galatians 6, 1-10 through daily, asking God to use me to make a difference in the lives of others through my spirit-led life. God knows the kind of life He wants for you. He knew the kind of life He wanted for Jim Elliott, and it was a brief life. You're likely familiar with this name. Jim was a missionary in South America, killed at age 29 by the very people he was trying to reach for Christ. Before he was killed, Jim wrote the following prayer in his diary. Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. This is a prayer for a life of substance. What kind of life are you going to live? Paul has shown us how and why to live the spiritual life. It's a life of substance that cultivates new life in others. It is a life like Christ. I want to take a moment this morning and talk to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. What kind of life are you living? The Bible teaches us that true life, eternal life, is found only in Jesus Christ. Uh, Did you know that your sin separates you from God? There's nothing you can do to fix that on your own. Your brokenness and guilt are yours forever. But God loves you. And provided one who can fix this, it is Jesus. Jesus is God who became man He took on flesh, born of a virgin. He is the God-man who dwelt among us. And since He is the God-man, He lived a sinless life that no one else could live. And He alone is qualified to die for your sin. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God, which means that He is the perfect and only sacrifice for our sins. There's no other way for our sins to be removed and taken away. But that's what Jesus came to do because He loves you so much. He gave His life on a cross in your place, and there He experienced all of God's wrath for all of your sin and my sin. He paid for or He atoned for our sin, and then three days later, He rose from the dead. He's not just like anyone who died and stayed dead. He died and he came to life, which means every promise in him is true. Jesus loves you and he promises to forgive you and to give you eternal life if you'll turn from your sin and give your life entirely to Jesus Christ. When you turn to him, you're going to find that he's a savior who is gentle and humble and generous, just like we read about today. And if you're ready to receive new life by turning to Christ, then I encourage you, 
just to voice a simple prayer on your own that speaks your faith in Him. The power of that prayer is not so much in the words, but in the sincerity of your heart, and God knows your heart. If you have questions and want to talk more, then when our service is over, I want you to come and talk to me. But don't let eternal life wait another day. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I don't think any one of us would say we want to be hypocrites. I don't think any of us would say, I I want the label without the substance. So thank you for giving us the substance today. Thank you for showing us what it means to be a spiritual person. And I'm grateful that the outworking of being spiritual is, is just in common everyday things. You're not describing things that are only for a select few. But you are describing things that unless we walk with you, we will not live this way. So thank you for making a way for us. And I pray that you would raise up in our church people who are committed to the universal goodness of all people, a faith family that's concerned for each other, that bears each other's burdens, that restores the fallen. Lord, let the, the identity of Christ consume us in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, so that when we enter a room, people would recognize Christ in us before they recognize us. Let there be no mistake in this community and the communities around us that this is a group of people who walks with Jesus because of the way we practice goodness and pay attention to personal holiness. Lord, there are places where worldly strategies seem to be better suited than your word. Forgive us for that arrogance. And let us grip onto the words of Christ so that we would live in a way that brings him honor and glory. So Lord, renew our walk with you today. Help us to be burden lifters. Lord, I pray that you would bring new life to the one that says yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.